Session four, session four, Paul's pattern for making disciples. Session four, Paul's pattern for making disciples. Now the gospel of grace is a unique message. It's not a product of human reason or teaching. It's of divine origin and the apostles received it by revelation. It is the power of God under salvation and will continue to be so as long as it remains a gospel of radical grace. But it loses its power and effectiveness the moment it is mixed with legalism. And yet, in the New Testament epistles, there are many exhortations relating to how we should live. We call those New Testament instruction. Okay? So how can we live righteously without becoming legalistic? This is a question that... Um, we need to address in this session. See, you can read the New Testament in a very legalistic way, and you can read the Old Testament in a grace way. Because remember, the Old Testament is the only Bible the apostles had, the early church had, and they preached grace. As we saw yesterday, um, the gospel of grace is rooted in the Old Testament. It all speaks of Jesus, and they preached Christ out of the Old Testament. But we can take the New Testament even and just take some of those instructions and turn them into legalistic impositions that we put on people. You know, I mean, one extreme case, you know, is women should wear hats in church. You know, taking something out of its context, out of its cultural context, and all of a sudden it becomes a law that divides Christians and, and just puts another guilt trip on people. But even so, there's, there's a lot of instructions in the New Testament. Paul says, don't be angry. Don't steal anymore. Um, husbands, love your wives. <laughs> don't use bad language. Stop lying. Stop gossiping. All those things. Now, you can lift those out and preach them in such a way that people come back under condemnation. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you preach those things without them becoming legalistic? Now, here are three important distinctions between legalism and New Testament instruction. Okay, number one is that Paul always taught the Christian life in two parts, doctrine and application. Doctrine and application. Uh, let me give you some examples of that. First of all, he, he taught believers, first of all, who they were in Christ. We spent a whole session yesterday talking about identity, how important it is that we know who we are. Then he exhorted them to be those people, to live in the power of their new creation identity. You know, there's a man that was discovered on the beach in uh, Hawaii with his face down in the sand and when he recovered because he was unconscious he was suffering from amnesia 
He didn't know who he was. He didn't know if he was married, didn't know if he had a job, didn't know if he even lived in Hawaii. He didn't know anything about himself. They just called him William because they had to give him a name. And, and, and his photo appeared in the paper, the local paper, to see if anybody could recognise him. And there was a picture of this vacant looking man. He didn't know who he was, so he couldn't be that person. Did you see that? He didn't know his identity, so he, couldn't, he didn't know if he was married, so he couldn't go and be with his wife. He didn't know if he worked at a job, so he couldn't go and do that job. He didn't know who he was. If you don't know who you are, you can't be that person. So that's why Paul spends a lot of time telling us who we are in Christ. Then he says, now go and be those people. Be who you are. That's the teaching or the New Testament instruction and the way that it was taught by Paul. So first of all, he taught the believers position in Christ. And then he exhorted them to embrace the walk that corresponds with that position. Now, here are three examples. These are the classic examples. Ephesians. Ephesians, the first three chapters, the whole focus is on who we are in Christ. So Paul teaches that over and over and over and over again. In fact, in the first 14 verses you'll find that phrase, in Christ, or in Him, or in the Beloved, or in whom, 11 times in 14 verses. You'd think that Paul was almost obsessed with it. He just keeps on saying it over and over and over and over again. And then there's two prayers in that first half of the epistle. And in those prayers, Paul prays that God would give those he's praying for, the church at Ephesus, and of course us, the church, the spirit of revelation, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that we might know who we are and what we have in Christ. That's the key. See, we can, we can preach, we can teach. We are, I was having this conversation in the break. We can share with people, but it's God who works in their hearts. We can't do that part. We can't change people. And it's when their eyes are open and they see the truth, that they will come towards it. And, and so, first of all, he says, this is who you are. You are a people, not in Adam now, in Christ. Then, in the second half, he begins to apply that positional teaching with the application, the outworking. He says, I beseech you therefore to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And five times he mentions the believer's walk. If you're in Christ, how does one who is in Christ walk? How does one who is in Christ live? Well, we walk in the light. We walk worthy. We don't walk as we used to walk, as the Gentiles walked. We walk in love. Amen? That's just the outworking of who we are. Colossians. Let's take another example. Four chapters. The first two chapters, the doctrine is our inseparable union with Christ. He is the head, we are the body. Now, you, you can't have a head severed from the body. You can't have a body severed from the head. We are, we are inseparably joined to Christ. Amen? The head directs the body. From the brain, the signals go to every part of the body that moves it to action. That's the way the church operates. 
in union with Christ, in, in total harmony with our head. Now, if that's the case, don't try to live the Christian life, says Paul, through legalism. And he attacks, you know, living by the law, those that are still trying to live according to the law, Sabbaths and feasts and so on. They were just a shadow of the things to come. So don't go back under the law, but don't live by humanistic legalism either. Man-made rules. You, you know, you can look these passages up and do a bit more of an in-depth Bible study on them. But so the first thing he does, he talks about this is who you are. You are joined to Christ. You are one with Christ. He's the head, you're the body. Now, the application is if then we were raised with Christ, we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Amen. All things are under his feet. Well, the feet are a part of the body, so all things are under us. Amen. And so let there be an outworking of that. But he, you know what we do? We jump into the second half of the epistles. This is what we do. Oh, forget all that doctrine stuff. We're not into doctrine. Uh, you know, you should love your wives more. Uh, you know, stop lying, stop stealing, stop getting angry. You know, uh, don't be bitter and all this. And it becomes legalism because we've divorced it from teaching people who they are. When people know who they are, it, the natural thing is to behave in a way that a new creation behaves. Romans, we looked at Romans yesterday. The doctrine there mainly is that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. First eight chapters. Then from chapters 11, uh, 9 to 11, there's a, a little bit of an interlude about Israel, God's purpose for Israel. But then the application comes at verse 12, chapter 12 rather, where Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, therefore, on the basis of all that I've said in the previous chapters, I beseech you, therefore, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Amen. This is who you are. So with your bodies, live for the glory of God. Now, let's get a, um, uh, just a couple of people here to help me. Um, Marie, you want to come on out? Come on out, Marie, and uh, um, Vi, come on out as well, if you would. Thanks. Just, would you mind just holding that piece of paper there? One that side and one the other. There you go. Now, I'm going to cut this piece of paper with the scissors, okay? Here we go. Oh, somebody said these, they were sharp, but it's not cutting. Of course it's not cutting. What am I doing wrong? I'm only using one blade, right? Scissors were meant to, have both blades closing against each other, allowing me to cut through like that. Okay, it's easy when you use both blades. You know what? You can have that as a gift from me. <laughs> Souvenir. Um, you know what often we do in preaching? We use one blade. We use one blade. We get straight into the application. Trying to get people to perform, to behave, to live in a certain way without first telling them who they are in Christ. Can you see that? And, and it's hard because then it's, okay, I've got to do this in my flesh rather than this is just a natural outflowing of who I am in Christ. Um, so, one of the greatest things that we can do is to teach people identity. You know, we are, as we saw yesterday, the righteousness of God in Christ. 
Now, when we really teach that and teach that and people understand, hey, this is true, I am righteous in Christ. Next question, how do righteous people live? In righteousness, they live righteously. So it's just the outflowing of who they are. We are the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. So what does that imply? Intimacy with him? Not being kept at a distance with a veil between us? Christ one side of the veil, we're the other side of the veil? No, we're as intimate as you can be in a relationship with Christ. He doesn't keep us at a, at a distance. He wants to sup with us. He wants to fellowship with us. He wants to commune with us. That's the normal Christian life. But instead of just saying, you know, we should pray more, we should spend time with God, which we do, it becomes like a, a should ought thing. That becomes legalism. Instead of saying, you are the bride of Christ. So therefore enjoy your privilege of an intimate relationship with Jesus. Another thing the Bible teaches is that we are kings. Now, what do kings do? <laughs> they reign. They reign over their domain. God created us to reign. When he created man, he said, have dominion. Not be reigned over, not be ruled over, not let things have dominion over you. Amen? You, he set us free from bondage, and now he's enthroned us to reign with him. And we reign in this life. You know, you, sometimes you say to Christians, how are you going? Well, not bad under the circumstances. What are you doing under the circumstances? You should be over the circumstances, on top of the circumstances. Amen? Not under them. We're kings. We're right. So we teach, first of all, what it means to be a king, and then the outflowing of that. It's easy for people to get it. Oh, this is what kings do. They reign in life. Amen? Um, the Bible says, uh, for example, also that we are the temple of God. Do you know that you are the temple of God? You know, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you know the problem in Corinth was immorality, fornication. The whole city was known worldwide for its fornication because they had all these temples and the way that you appeased the God was to have sex with the priestess, one of the priestesses in the temple and that brought you nearer to God and so so it was a life of fornication now when people were getting saved they came into church you know what they didn't just drop fornication all of them immediately it took them a while to transit now how did Paul get them to change you know what we'd say today you know if you commit fornication you'll go to hell he didn't say that he didn't say that at all. He said, don't you know that you are the temple of God? Don't you know that you, your body is a member of Christ? Are you going to take Christ into bed with a prostitute? You can't do that. Don't be stupid. You can't do that. Amen? You see, from the position of who you are, you're the temple of God. God lives in you. You know under the old covenant, only one man, one part of one day every year could go into the Holy of Holies. You are the Holy of Holies. God lives in you 24-7. Wherever you go, you take the Lord with you. You can't take him to bed with a prostitute. And so he would appeal to them on the basis of their new creation identity 
It's only natural. Hey, you know, our, our behaviour now must line up with what is true about us now. And so that's the first thing that keeps legalism out of the new covenant. We, we teach all the New Testament instruction, but we don't teach it without first of all teaching people their new creation identity. We've got no right to just appeal to people's behaviour until they know who they are. And then behaviour is the natural outflowing of what is true about them. Secondly, Paul never taught Christians to produce something. He taught them that they'd already received something. See, legalism teaches us to manufacture certain behavioural works. In contrast, in Christ we are given something. We have been given his life. Now, the difference, if I can use this illustration, is between a Christmas tree and a fruit tree. You know, at Christmas we get out the, the artificial tree and we put things on it, you know, the decorations. Why do we put things on it? Because it's dead. It's not going to produce anything. We've got to artificially put things on the outside. That's what religion does. It tries behaviour modification to, to make changes from the outside in. The fruit tree produces fruit. Why? Because it's alive. It has life. Can you see the difference? So Paul never says, now, you should try to get something that you don't already have. See, instead of, for example, trying to produce patience, purity, love, generosity, etc., by faith I put on the new man, which was created according to God in righteousness and holiness. Let me give an example. Um, one of my weaknesses before I was a Christian is very, very impatient. Very impatient. Write that down. Hurry up. Write it down. <laughs> I was very impatient. You know, if I got stuck behind a truck in the car, man, I would just manifest. I would get so angry, so angry, and, and you know, just steam coming out of my ears. And so people would say, you know, you should try to be more patient. I can't. In my flesh dwells no good thing. My flesh will never improve. Your flesh will never improve. You'll always have the same flesh. In your flesh dwells no good thing. Amen? God does not have a program for reforming your flesh. What he does, he gives you his spirit. God's answer to the flesh is not improve the flesh, but walk in the spirit. Amen? So, when I became a Christian, I did not receive a law, thank God for that, I received the life. He that has the Son has the life. Now, answer me this question. Is Jesus patient? Yes, yes of course he is. Does Jesus live in me? Yes. What does the Bible say? The fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering. <laughs> I can sit behind that truck for the whole journey if I walk in the Spirit. Amen? It's there. Everything that I need lives inside me. The Bible says that his divine power has given unto me all things that pertain to life and godliness. When you receive Christ, you receive the life, the life of Christ. Not trying to manufacture something, we have received life. You know, again, I tell you now, I do not find it easy to love unlovely people. I'm being honest with you. 
In fact, I've, as I've confessed, you know, I don't even love lovely people. I just love me. <laughs> I'm selfish. In my flesh grows no good thing. That's what flesh is, it's a focus on self. I just live for me in my flesh. But does Jesus love unlovely people? Yes, he does. He loved me. <laughs> Amen. Does Jesus live in me? Yes, he does. So therefore, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. God will make sure that there are unlovely people in your life. You know, some of them may even be in your home. <laughs> they are certainly in your church, not our church. Isn't that right? And so what do people do? They go from church to church. I must get away from these unlovely people. And then shock horror, they go to another church and there are unlovely people here again. Is God trying to say something? He wants to manifest his life through you so that you experience the grace of God. You experience divine life. You experience the life of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Hallelujah. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. Paul taught the root of holiness before he exhorted his readers concerning the fruits of holiness. The root determines the fruit. See, we focus on fruit. We want to see results. And if we don't see fruit growing, we put artificial fruit on the tree. We try to make things happen. Now, God is interested in the root. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. If we preach fruit without root, we will end up with artificial fruit. Amen. If you preach the root, who is the root? Jesus. The root will produce the fruit. You remember Jesus taught the parable of the, the seed? And uh, some of the seed fell on rocky ground. It sprung up, but what happened? It came to nothing. It died. Why? The Bible says because it had no root. It was not rooted in Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 3, Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Some people just quote the first part of that. They say, see, we've got to work out our own salvation. We've got to, we've got to save ourselves. That's what they're saying. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying God has worked in you something. Now you work that out. You let that outwork in your life. You can only work out what God has worked in. Amen? And that's why the Bible says, put on love. Put on patience. Put on. These things have been given to you. You haven't got to manufacture them. This is the life of Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith. Lord, I can do all things through you who strengthens me. Let's move on. We come to the last distinction uh, between legalism 
and New Testament instruction is this, that we overcome the flesh not by focusing upon the flesh, but by the Spirit. Legalism is always law-focused. It always focuses on the, the things you've got to do. And therefore, it's sin-focused. So, for example, if you've got a problem with anger, uh, you, you go and see a, some counsellors, and you'll have eight weeks of anger management. You know what you're doing? You're, you're focusing on your anger. You're focusing on your flesh. And whatever you focus on, you give strength to. You give prominence to. That, that looms before you. This anger, I've got an anger problem. And it becomes, we magnify the problem. We magnify the flesh. New covenant holiness is spirit focused. It took me a long time to realize this, friends. Note where Paul's emphasis is in the following examples. He says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, when I read that, I thought, yeah, the lust or the desires of the flesh. And if you look at that list in Galatians 5, there's about, I don't know, about 20 aspects of the flesh. And I did a series on the works of the flesh. <laughs> week after week after week, I talked about anger, you know, lust, greed, covetousness, strife, envy, all the, all the things that Paul listed there. You know what I was doing? I was just focusing on the flesh. You know why? Because I was, I was suffering from spiritual dyslexia. You know, seeing things the wrong way around. I'm thinking, yeah, the, the, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. That's what we've got to overcome. And so I preached on that. Paul didn't say overcome that. What did he say? He said, walk in the spirit. That's, that's the active thing to do. And the consequence of that is you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. <laughs> Can you see the difference? Friends, I want to tell you, every one of us here is capable of walking according to the spirit and walking according to the flesh. You know that. We're capable of both and we, we do both. But I want to tell you this. One thing I know for sure, you cannot do both at the same time. You cannot do both at the same time. You will either walk according to the, 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 the flesh or you'll walk according to the spirit. So Paul says the way to not walk according to the flesh is to walk according to the spirit. Don't even think about the flesh. Don't focus. Don't try to fight it. Don't try to, you know, go to war against it. The spirit goes to war against it. You walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Don't become law focused. We saw that last session that will aggravate sin in you. Don't become sin focused because you're not sinners. You're the righteousness of God. Keep focusing on the spirit life. Seek those things that are above where Christ reigns. Okay, here's another scripture. We looked at this last night. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So by yielding the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness unto holiness, we make them unavailable to serve sin. 
Anybody know Bob Dylan's song, You're Gonna Have to Serve Somebody? Bob Dylan became a Christian. I, I, I don't quite understand it. He became a Christian for about three years and he wrote some incredible songs. And one of them is based on Romans 6. He said, you know, uh, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. We were made to serve something or someone. You'll either serve sin or you'll serve righteousness. You will not remain neutral. You can, there's no such thing as neutrality. You're going to yield your body to this or you're going to yield your body to that. But I tell you this, you cannot yield the members of your body to sin and to righteousness at the same time. You can, as a Christian, yield the members of your body to serve sin. We've all done that. You can also yield the members of your body to serve righteousness, but you cannot serve both at the same time. Amen? So don't start fighting sin. Yield the members of your body to serve righteousness. You know, let's just say, for example, there's someone in your church that has a problem of just starting trouble, gossiping, stirring up strife, stirring up trouble, you know. They have a telephone ministry, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, how do you deal with that? Well, you can get that person to say, you've got to stop doing that. You've got to stop gossiping and spreading rumours and stirring up strife. And You can lay down the law. That's one way. But you know a better way? Because all you're doing is you're, you're taking sin away from that person, but you're leaving them in a state of neutrality. And you can't be in a state of neutrality. The best thing to do is to say, what gift has God given this person? Because they should be yielding the members of their body to serve righteousness. God has given his grace upon them to serve him in some way and most likely that person hasn't discovered their gift or is not using their gift. Get them serving the Lord. Get their bodies serving the Lord. Because you can't serve sin and righteousness at the same time. Amen. And that's Paul's way. Jesus said this, you know, he said, um, when, when, when a demon is cast out, it's like a house is swept clean, you know that parable? Yeah. If you don't fill that house, what's going to happen? The demon's going to come back with seven others and the last state will be worse than the other. Now, Jesus was actually talking about Israel and the fact that all those Old Testament years, they kept falling back into their continuous sin of idolatry. Now there's something that fixed that and it was the captivity. They went away into captivity. When they came back from captivity, they never committed idolatry again. But you know what? The house was swept clean, but it was empty. It was waiting for Jesus, the rightful master, to fill the house. And, and Jesus said, if you don't fill this house, the last state will be worse than the first, which it was. It was filled with legalism and religion and hypocrisy and so on. Now, we've been cleansed to be filled. To be filled. There's only one way to be a Christian, that's to be a real Christian. It's like riding a bicycle, isn't it? You can't just stay still. You're going to fall off. You've got to keep going forward. Keep going for Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay.
just lastly then, <clears throat> Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Does he? So what's the emphasis there on making no provision for the flesh? No, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the consequence of that is that you'll make no provision for the flesh. Let's just say, for example, I want to go and uh, uh, buy a new shirt. Okay, maybe, maybe the shirt I've got is just so, it's, it's just full of holes and it's threadbare. It's just falling apart. It looks terrible. And, and, and I go to the shops and, and I think, oh, this is a nice shirt. And I go into the cubicle and I try it on. And, and before, before I try it on, do I stand in front of the mirror thinking, oh man, this old shirt, it's terrible. How could I have worn this for so long? What did people think about me? I wonder if they talked about me. I bet they talked about me. That old shabby shirt that he's wearing. Would I stand there thinking that, thinking about the... No, I've got this new shirt. I'm only thinking about getting this new shirt on. And as a consequence of that, I take the old shirt off and it's crumpled and it's lying in the corner without me even thinking about it because I want to put on the new shirt. And then I put on the new shirt and I think, man, this makes me look even more handsome. <laughs> you know, I kind of, I'm just focused, I'm not even thinking about that old shirt. That was just, I got rid of that to get on the new. Get excited about the new. Get excited about Jesus. Don't focus on sin. Don't focus on the flesh. Don't focus on the failure. Don't focus on the law. But focus on the spirit. Focus on the new life. So let's just recap very quickly. The New Testament is full of a lot of instruction. If we're not careful, we can become legalistic in the way that we read that. We need to understand the apostolic way of reading and interpreting that New Testament instruction. First of all, they always, Paul always taught identity, always taught people who they were, and then he said, now go and be those people. Let there be an outworking of that. Secondly, we saw that he never taught them to produce something, but he taught them, you have something. Amen. You don't have to become something. This is who you are now. Walk in what God has given you. And then thirdly, we overcome the flesh, not by focusing on the flesh, but by focusing on the spirit. <clears throat> Amen. Okay, we're going to take a five minute break and then we'll come to the last teaching session. And then if you've got any questions, we're going to have those as we finish up. So we, we guarantee that we'll be finished by half past 12 latest today. So just take a five minute break, have a walk around, get a glass of water or something, have a wander over at the table or whatever you want to do, just do that now and then we'll, we'll come back in five minutes. <clears throat>